Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. Kids, head back uh, to Kids Church. Let me invite you to take your Bible and go to uh, the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. Um, and so, so last week, or over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about uh, biblical church leadership. Uh, specifically, we looked at what we'd say is the biblical pattern of a plurality or multiple elders uh, within a congregation. Um, and then last week, um, we, we continued to build on, on this importance of, of biblical church, re- church leadership, uh, really looking at the negative side of that and, and the reality of sin in the world um, in which we live, the, the reality of, of sin in our own lives that allows uh, false teaching to creep in if we're not careful, if we're not diligent. Um, and so that's where, that's where we, we've been in the, the first couple of uh, messages in this series in Titus. And this morning, uh, we're really shifting uh, a focus from leadership, uh, from an emphasis on the role of elders, and, and even really em- emphasizing the danger of false teaching, to the function of the family of, of faith. Um, so simply asking the questions, how do we relate to one another within the local body of believers? What difference does it make, or, or what difference should it make, that we're a part of a local church body? What does it look like to be a church family? How do we interact with one another? Um, what, what roles and responsibilities come with being a part of a church, uh, of a local church body? Is it just um, another organization like like kind of a country club with a spiritual bent. Is that all the local church is? Um, or is there something more to it? That's where we're going to go this morning. Uh, as th- this past week, um, I-, I didn't know this was going to coincide, but um, I've been reading a book on um, Islam called Islam and North America. And it just kind of um, takes a look at, at um, the-, the impact that Islam is having on, on the United States and the um, the, the projected growth of, of Islam in the United States. Um, and a simple fact is, so, so right now, um, Muslims make up about 1% of, of our nation's population. Um, by the year 2050, uh, sociologists expect that number to double. So, so I mean, we're, we're looking at about 2%, but, but uh, doubling the number of, of Muslims who, are, uh, who will be in the United States. And... Um, Part of what, what this book is doing is, is trying to open um, our eyes as church leaders and, and, uh, and, and believers uh, to the reality that um, Muslims will become our neighbors as part of our, as part of our communities. They, they are immigrating here. Um, we, we're seeing um, Muslim families um, coming here and having children, so, so they are, they're reproducing in that way. Um, but, but the simple fact is that's going to be a, um, a reality. And, and then how to how we can go about building relationships with them in order to share the gospel. But one of the key things that, that I found or I discovered about um, Islam is that in Islam, the idea of family is very important, not just their immediate family, um, but within Islam itself, there's a, there is a network of, um, of what, what we would call a church family within Islam. It's a very powerful force um, of uh, of providing care for one another. So when, when, 
when an individual comes to faith in Christ and they turn from Islam to Jesus Christ, they lose a family. In some cases, um, literally, they are disowned by their family for, for coming to faith in Christ. And, and what, what we found is that they've, in, in some cases, new believers coming out of Islam have struggled because they don't see the same, they don't experience the same type of family within a local church that they experienced within Islam. Now, we'll talk about this this morning. I'm not saying that we need to take Islamic practices and, and um, uh, move them over and, and turn them into Christian practices. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that if we believe that we have the, the real truth about who, who God is, that, that Jesus is the one and only way to the Father, and that as part of establishing the kingdom on earth, God has provided this blessing that we call the local church body, Shouldn't that mean that we care for one another? Shouldn't that mean that, that when someone becomes a follower of Christ, they are welcomed into a family? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Titus, is what does it look like to be part of the family of faith in a local church body? So if you have Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, let's stand together as we read the word that the Lord's given to us this morning. Paul writes to Titus and says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything, And to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning asking you to speak through your word. As we look at how we're to interact with one another within the family of God inside a local church, will you... Will you show us ways that we're doing that well, that we can continue doing that well? Will you reveal... Some areas where we're falling short, where we need to repent of, of failure and follow your, the example that you've given to us in Scripture. Thank you so much for this passage, and we pray that you will use it to shape us and mold us this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You can take a seat. Um, now, as I've said before, the reason that I... That I preach through books of the Bible primarily is because it, it forces me to come to passages that I probably wouldn't just, just teach um, out of the blue. There's a lot of good stuff in Titus, but, but these, these kind of roles within the, the church body is probably not one that would be high on my list. And yet, uh, because we're, we're going through this book um, as part of kind of a larger um, series going through the, what we call the, the pastoral letters in, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and now Titus, um, 
we can't just skirt it, right? I mean, we've got we've to address it. And so in this passage, Paul deals with relationships within the body of Christ and how different generations relate to one another. And he, and he starts out in, in verse 1 by uh, contrasting the false teacher's conduct with what he expects of Titus, right? So he says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. He's just talked about at the end of chapter one, these false teachers who were not proclaiming things according to sound teaching. And, and he reminds Titus, but, but you are to be different, okay? And, and so to this elder Titus, who's, who's an elder in, in uh, one of the churches in Crete, he lays out some things that, that Titus is to teach the various groups within the congregation. Uh, now, understand that, that typically Jewish culture um, recognized that there were two stages of life. Okay, so, so they recognized that there was youth and then that there was old age. Now, I will let you determine for yourself where you fit within those two categories in, in, in Scripture, okay? But there was youth and there was old age. And but the point of what we're going to see this morning is that we need both young people and older people in the life of a church. And then at the very end, we're going to talk about slaves. That's, that, that, those were part of the household. Um, thankfully, we, we no longer have them, but there are still some principles to apply there for us as well. Okay? So what we see is, is the older generations and the younger generations um, both having a purpose, both having a place in the local church, and both being needed in the life of local church. So Paul's going to start with older men in verse 2, and this is what he says. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love, and endurance. Okay, so he says, really kind of lays out four things here. He says that, that older men are to be self-controlled, they're to be worthy of respect, they're to be sensible they're to be sound in faith, love, and endurance. Now, what's interesting is if we, we take this list and we compare it to um, what Paul's laid out as qualifications for elders and for deacons in places like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and, and even back in, in chapter 1 of Titus, um, what we see is that these lists are very similar. Right? So, for instance, uh, if, you'll, if you're in Titus, look with me at, verse, at chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So this is what he says. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, and self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Now, when he's talking about elders, he'll give a little bit more detailed description. But, but if we look at these main categories that he gives here, we would say that, that elders certainly should fit into that, right? Self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and then sound in faith, love, and endurance. So, so understand here, what, what we see are not... Um, that there's not two standards of conduct that are expected of believers. 
So there's not, well, live this way if you're just an average run-of-the-mill believer. Live this way if you want to be an elder or a deacon or if you want some sort of leadership. What we see is he's laying out similar standards or, or the same standard for believers across the board. There's a standard of conduct that's, that should be there for all believers that elders and deacons model and exemplify for those they lead. So, so look, when, when it comes to, as, as we move into this fall and we, we look at going through the process of, of nominating deacons again, we're not looking for super Christians. We're not looking for, for people that are like head and shoulders above everyone else. What we're looking for are men who modeled this, not perfectly, but consistently in their lives. And I find it interesting that the final command to, to older men is to be sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Now again, this would be in contrast to the false teachers that, that, Timothy's, or that uh, Paul's previously talked about. So here's the thing, right? Older men in the church are called to be knowledgeable in the Word of God so that they may pass along what they've learned about God to future generations. We see this in in 2 Timothy 2.2, which we've looked at several times and we're going to continue to look at um, because it lays out a pattern where Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, uh, teach, uh, pass on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The point is that, that as, as believers, we're not called just to, to study the Word of God and build up this knowledge for ourselves so that we can, uh, we, we can tell everyone else how much we know. Rather, we're called to be knowledgeable in the things of God so we can teach that to others who can teach others, who can teach others, who can teach others. And that's how we get generations of discipleship. Now, notice this, too. And this is important um, for men and for women, because what we're getting ready to see and what we're seeing the first few years of and what we're going to see for about the next uh, 20 years or so is the baby boomer generation hitting retirement. That's happening right now before us, the the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, okay? The, The baby boomer generation are hitting retirement. We have the largest force of people in retirement that that our nation has ever seen. And this is why these instructions to older men and older women are are particularly important for us, because what we don't see in the biblical pattern is this idea that that older men are not encouraged to just retire, play golf, and take life easy, right? Hop in the RV and and take off. That's not the pattern that we see in the Bible. Now, now let me be clear, retirement's a blessing, okay? You, you work hard for 40 years, I, b- I believe you're entitled to retire. I hope to play a few more rounds of golf when I get there. Maybe, maybe I can improve on some things uh, whenever retirement finally, finally happens. But, but listen, God has so much more for us to do in life than just kick back and play 18, rounds, 18 holes of golf every day. 18 rounds of golf. That's an accomplishment. That would, be, that would be impressive. 18 holes of golf every day. And kick back and wait to die. God, God has so much more for us, even as we approach the twilight years of life. You know something I've, I've recognized as a really interesting irony in, in, in the way our world operates? 
Have you noticed that wisdom often comes after strength has failed? Have you noticed that? That wisdom often comes after strength has failed. So my, what I'm simply saying is those of you who are older, who have wisdom, those of us who are younger desperately need the wisdom you have because we're dumb. And, and as we see the boomers coming into retirement, we have a mission force hitting retirement age. A mission force who can do mighty things for the kingdom of God. I'm so excited to see what happens over the next 20 years. To see how God uses this incredible generation. All right, so he starts with older men. Then he moves to older women in verse 3. This is what he says. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good. Okay, now in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, you don't have to turn there, but um, Paul warned about false teachers who would worm their way into households, he says, and they would deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions. And so for, for older women, the, what, what Paul's cautioning against here is idleness, not, not being... Not being gossips, right? That would be slanderers. Not, not slaves to excessive drinking, or, or I think we'd put in there maybe any slave to anything else. Rather, teaching what is good, staying diligent in God's word and passing that knowledge around to others. And, and, and as, I, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, how many times have, have we seen um, a news story about, um, perhaps about a, about a widow, a lonely, lonely widow who sent large amounts of money to some TV preacher only to later find out that he's a fraud, right? Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years ago, Paul's cautioning us against these things that we still see happening in our world today? Um, so again, this is not a, it's not a blanket statement to, to every older woman saying this is what you are doing. It's just a caution um, saying guard against these things, guard against idleness, teach what is good. And then, then he goes on and he, he even says at the beginning of verse 4, uh, the end of verse 3, they are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women. Again, notice the, the passing along to the next generation of what you've learned. So they may teach younger women. Now let's, let's shift to younger women. They may teach younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Now, really quickly, before you shoot me, okay, um, number one, I didn't write this, okay? Number two, don't make this say what it doesn't say, okay? So it laid out some, some responsibilities here for, for younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled. If you notice that that's a recurring theme here, it's going to we're going to see it more, by the way. To be pure. To be workers at home. Okay? Now, now, let me stop here for just a second. Keep in mind that in the first century culture, women did not work outside the home. It was not, that was not something that, that was 
normal. Men worked outside the home. Women took care of the house. So I think this is a descriptor that if, if that's what women are doing, that's, that's their job, to take care of the home. It's not an always and forever command that this is all you can ever do, women. Okay? This is not a women should only be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. That's not what's happening here. Okay? But what we do see throughout Scripture, we see this pattern that God has called husbands and fathers to be the leaders in their home. All right, we see that. Um, and, and we'll talk more about that in just a second when we get to, to younger men. Um, but we, we see the wives here are called, if, if there's a supporting um, language here, that's because I think that's, what, that's the biblical pattern, that God has called wives to love, to support their husbands as he follows Christ, to follow the husband as he follows Christ. That doesn't mean you, 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 um, you know, just blindly follow him and whatever he says, wherever he goes, uh, that, that qualification is there as he follows Christ. Ladies, follow your husband, okay? So older women are called to teach these things, to teach younger women. Uh, now, certainly this would apply to daughters, as, as that would be the, the primary um, relationship there. But it would also apply to younger women in the church. Now, as, as we got to celebrate just a few weeks ago, we've been blessed with a number of younger families in our church. Um, that means we're, we're blessed with a number of small children. Um, Jeannie Harshi came into the office on Monday frazzled because she said we had seven babies under two years old in the nursery. And I said, well, hallelujah. She goes, yes, hallelujah, but also help. <laughs> um, it's, it's a blessing, right? That, that, that means um, that we have young kids, which is, is an amazing blessing to a church, but that also means that we have uh, parents of young kids. And so listen, moms who have raised children, you have a wealth of knowledge to offer. And you have a wealth of knowledge that young moms need to hear. Even if it's just as simple as you're doing a good job. You're, you know, you're, you're not failing at this job. Because I, I can tell you, as a, as a young parent, sometimes there are times just going, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with, with this person. And it's, it's, it's great as a young parent just to hear you're, you're doing okay. Here are some, here's, here's some advice. Here's some tips that we've learned. But look at the goal of all this. Okay, so at the end of, um, at the end of verse 5, Paul says all of this is so that God's word will not be slandered. It's because we teach something about what we believe about the word of God in the way we live. Now, this is not true just of young women, right? So you're not being singled out here. We're, we're going to see this several other times. But this is the overall goal, that our lives would model what God's Word says. That, that when, we, when we say we believe God's Word, our lives would reflect that as well. And then we get to younger men. Uh, and this starts in verse 6. And I find it interesting that this is the longest of the lists in this passage. So, so look with me at verse 6. It says, In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. 
Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Now, now this one gets a little bit more personal because I think this is where Titus is. He is a young man. And so as Paul's writing uh, to him about what to teach young men, he's, he's telling Titus what he's supposed to be doing. Now, as I've said, I think the Bible explicitly teaches us that God has charged men to lead their families spiritually. And... In the way that God has ordained things, the family is the primary unit of any society. That's where, that's where it all starts. So as young men marry and they become husbands and fathers, God has a unique calling on men. Now, now I would say this doesn't lessen the calling of anyone else, particularly of, of wives and of mothers, but we're seeing the results of, of a misunderstanding of this play out in our culture, where we have what, what I would refer to as an epidemic of fatherlessness. And where the father is absent, we see increases in both teen pregnancy rates and teen suicide rates. And, and I don't think that's coincidental. I think that God has ordained the family so that children need a mother and a father. And when one is missing, something's wrong, something's broken. So here's what God calls young men to be. He calls them to be self-controlled in everything. By the way, this is mentioned in three of the four groups that we've seen so far. It's not explicitly mentioned in, in the older women, but I think it's certainly implied that self-control is there. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said this, young men often know a great deal or think they do. And they are apt to be intoxicated with the idea of knowing so much and being able to do so much. So the exhortation to them is to be self-controlled. In other words... They think they know a lot, but self-control would remind us that we're not as smart nor as strong as we think we are. He calls on them, and especially on Titus, to be an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. He tells them that your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed. And I think these, these two things were important because if, if teaching is not accompanied by integrity and dignity... That will allow opponents, that will allow detractors of the faith to point and, and to say, see, they don't believe what they say they believe. They don't actually believe it. So, so the point of all this is that older men and, and older women are called to remain diligent in practicing and in teaching the faith and to pass along to future generations what they've learned. And as I said, isn't it amazing that that often wisdom comes when strength begins to fail. And the years of greatest physical strength and of youth are often some of the most foolish in our lives. So could it just be that, that younger folks need the wisdom of older folks? And older folks have the privilege and the responsibility of passing on the wisdom that they've learned. And I think that's the point of what Paul's getting out here. 
Now, quickly, let's look at verses 9 and 10. It's slaves. Um, so this is what Paul says. Slaves are to, be, are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter, utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Now, it, it seems interesting to us that slaves are mentioned in this list of the family of faith. That they're listed as a, as a separate category. Um, one reason for that is that in the first century, slaves would have been a part of the family, or at least part of the household. Now, now let me remind you of a couple of things regarding first century slavery. First of all, don't, um, don't equate what we know about the African slave trade in our own nation with first century slavery. They, they weren't quite the same uh, thing. Um, in the first century, slaves were often indentured servants, meaning uh, perhaps they found themselves in a great deal of debt that they were unable to pay. So, uh, because they couldn't pay, what they would do is, is essentially sell themselves as slaves to the person they owed money to. They would become their slave. Uh, by the way, this in no way excuses the immorality of slavery. Um, because we, I think we should be able to agree that any system which says it's okay for one human being to own another human being, um, would deny the, the imago Dei, the, the image of God uh, that, that Genesis talks about and says that we're, all, um, that we're all a part of, okay? So I'm not excusing that and saying it wasn't evil. I think it is evil. It, it was a different form of slavery, and just, we just don't want to confuse those two. We want to understand um, why, why Paul deals with this in the way he does. Now, secondly, notice what Paul does here. He addresses slaves as people. He does not talk about them as property. So in the, in the first century, as in what, what we know about our, the African slave trade in our nation, um, slaves had no rights. They, they were property. They could be bought. They could be sold. Um, they, they were the master's property to treat however, um, however he or she wanted. Um, and yet Paul does not address these people as property. He, he addresses them as people capable of making their own decisions, even within a system that they found themselves in. Right? So he reminds them that they have control over how they respond to their situation. So uh, that's why he says um, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness and then look at this last part. So that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So Paul's telling slaves that even in the middle of their situation, they have the opportunity to teach something about the Word of God. Even to their masters who may not have been believers. Paul reminds them that by working diligently, by submitting, by not stealing... They can proclaim the truth of the gospel even to their masters. Now, obviously, the closest thing we have to this in our society, at least in, in, in American society, is employment. I'm not making any jokes about slavery and employment, okay? I'm just saying it's, it's, it's not a perfect parallel, but, but I think there are principles to apply here to, to show how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, right? That we would be well-pleasing, 
that we would submit to the authority that God's placed over us in workplaces. We wouldn't talk back, that we wouldn't steal, that we would demonstrate utter, utter faithfulness so that we might proclaim the truth of the gospel. Okay, so let's wrap up. So in these, in these five areas that, that Paul talks about, the, in uh, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves, we, we see a couple of recurring themes. The first one, self-control. That, that as, as the followers of Christ, we would exhibit self-control in everything. And then secondly, that we would be faithful to the Word of God wherever we find ourselves um, in age, wherever we find ourselves in status in life. That we'd be people of self-control and that we'd be faithful to the Word of God. So don't miss this. God has given us a marvelous gift. He's given us each other. That's why we refer to the body as, as a church family. That, that the Bible makes clear we, we're not supposed to live the Christian life in, in isolation. In fact, that does not often work well. But God has given us the blessing of a family where we can learn from one another. We can pass on what we've learned. We can care for one another as we walk through the hard realities of life. And so if I were to, if I were to kind of sum everything up in a sentence, it would be this. And this, this should be on the screen. Simply this. In whatever stage of life, in whatever situation, we are to model faithfulness and godliness in order to proclaim the glorious truth of God's word. Whatever stage of life, whatever situation, we are to model faithfulness and godliness in order to proclaim the glorious truth of God's word. Now, Paul's addressing Titus here, who's an elder of a church on the island of Crete, right? So he's instructing Titus on what to teach to those in his church. So in this writing, there's an assumption that at least the majority of Titus's audience are believers. Now, while, while I typically make that same assumption, so, so when I come in here to instruct us, I'm, I'm instructing us as a body of, as a local church gathered together, meaning primarily I assume that the most of us in the room have turned from sin, have trusted in Christ, but I never want to make the assumption that everyone has done that, that all of us in the room are followers of Christ. So, so if you're here and you've not come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I, I want to invite you this morning to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. That's how you become a member of the body of Christ. That's how you enter into this family of faith, of people whose sins have been forgiven by Christ and who've been united together under the banner of the cross. If you've never done that, you can do it this morning by um, praying a prayer like this. As I often say, there is no, no magic words not a magic formula, no, no pixie dust here. These are just some, some words to help you uh, frame, to, to, to pray, asking the Lord to forgive sins. And that's simply this. Lord Jesus, my life is broken. I recognize it's because of my sin. I need you. I believe Christ came to live, die, and was raised from the dead to rescue me from my sin. So forgive me. I turn from my selfish ways and I put my trust in 
in you. I know that Jesus is Lord of all, and I will follow him. Maybe you're here today and you've never asked Jesus to forgive your sins, to be the Lord of your life. Today, I just want to invite you to do that, to enter into this family of faith. For the rest of us, let this morning's passage be a reminder that we have a responsibility to one another. We have the blessing of being a part of a family of believers united under one Lord and one Savior. That regardless of what happens in life, good or bad, that when we weep, we have a family of believers who weeps with us. When we rejoice, we have a family of believers who rejoices with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the blessing of the church. I thank you that you have set us up as a family. That includes folks of all ages, from different walks of life. with different jobs, different giftings, different socioeconomic levels, different races, and you've, you've united us in a local church, a local body of believers. Bound by the one thing that's stronger than anything that unites us, and that is that we are forgiven by Almighty God through the, faith, through the blood of Christ. So will you remind us of that this week as we've, as we mourn the losses of Dolores and Ken. I pray for us as a church body that we would, that we would model what it means to weep with those who weep. We'd wrap our arms around these families and walk with them through the grief process. Trusting that you are good in the middle of it all. Will you show us how we can grow as a church family? That we might be learning from one another and teaching one another. Coming to know you more deeply in the process. And growing closer to one another as well. We know that we can't do that on our own. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your forgiveness to walk with us. Shape us as a church body that reflects the beauty of the gospel to Alamogordo and to a lost and dying world around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you this week.